Good morning, High Point. You're all seeing me from here down. Um, since January, we've been doing things as a church. One of those things is been memorizing scripture. Um, one is a form of discipline, but also because it's important for us to hide God's word in our heart. So we're going to recite those passages for you. Um, I'll be reciting Philippians 2, 12b through 13. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. The next one is 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 11. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. For this very reason, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Psalm 116, verses 1 and 2. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will live for him. I'm sorry. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him all my life. This is 1 Samuel, chapter 7, verse 2b to 4. And all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand, <coughs> the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. It's amazing how hard it is to remember stuff when you're standing in front of people, isn't it? You're like, man, I have this cold at home. Um, okay, so just so we don't want people to come into a club that doesn't exist, all the tattoos are fake and temporary, so don't, don't get one this week because we won't have them next week. Um, if, you, if you're newer to High Point, you might not know me. My name's Nick Gibson. I've been the senior pastor here at High Point for seven years, um, and probably for at least 10 or 12 more weeks. So um, that's a joke, sorry. <laughs> um, so hopefully I'm back for a while longer. Um, and um, so I'll be a little rusty, but let's dive in. 
a couple years ago, I was listening to a talk by Rick Warren, who's a pastor of a big church out west, um, and he said about preaching in churches, he says that one of the biggest problems with preaching in churches is that um, you, you preach on too much. And I was concerned he meant by that, preach too often or too long, and that's actually not what he meant. He said, it's that you preach too much stuff. And I know you're trying to keep people interested by having like every sermon be this new, totally different thing. But he's like, that's really not how people learn or how people remember or how people grow. People learn, remember, and go by, by learning certain things over and over and over again and remembering them over and over and over again and, and them becoming part of us over and over and over again so that everything we do is out of these sort of basic things and then you can begin to add more onto them. I am, um, my seventh grade daughter asked me to coach her volleyball team this year. And so um, I'm coaching these seventh grade girl volleyball players and seventh grade is kind of the year where volleyball is supposed to go from the I'm terrified that the ball is coming to me and I'm going to just try to hit it over the net and hope the other girls screw up to where you're supposed to like hit the ball three times and like really attack them with some kind of systematic capacity for the game. And the problem is, is that in order to make that jump to strategy and positioning and all that, there's a number of basic volleyball skills, fundamentals that like you have to be good at, right? So for example, um, you simply cannot be a volleyball player if every time the ball comes over the net, you're not like this. You just can't. You do it about 300 times a game. This. Because every time they hit the ball, you're repositioning, and you're getting ready to move, because it turns out that when the ball is moving around, you have to be ready to move. Right? But if you don't do that, you can't do anything that comes after it. You can't move to the ball, therefore then you can't get a good hit on the ball, which the other person then is dealing with your bad hit, and then dealing with their bad hit, they do a bad set, when you get a and everything's bad. It's just bad, 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 right? And yet, 12-year-olds have a hard time with the idea of doing the same thing over and over and over again with discipline until you do it perfectly. Which is, frankly, one of the reasons why, as Christians, we participate in sports, right? Hopefully it's not for the idolatry of it. We have certain reasons. I have a, a, a blog that I did, like, 25 reasons Christians play sports. And one of them was learning how to do something well, Right? And the thing is, is that just kind of getting in position, in athletic position, is actually true of all sports. And you can't do anything well in sports without doing it. And here's the thing. You see players all the time in sports, as they want to do more advanced things, they stop doing these things. And what happens is, is then they're doing the more advanced skill, but they're off. They're not hitting it right. They're just not quite there. And they don't really know why. It's actually because they're not doing the first thing right. And here's why. Because we never really learn the fundamental all that well. And then we forget the fundamental as 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 soon as we start thinking of other things. And then oftentimes, once we get that far, we start quitting doing the most fundamental thing because we want to do the more advanced thing. And it turns out you can't do the more advanced thing if you quit working from the most fundamental thing. And I really believe, and I've always been terrified as a pastor— to preach things long enough for people to get them because I was always bored in school. Um, Things were never moving fast enough. I have this kind of ADD mind, and I'm just kind of—I was just bored by everyone and everything. And I was very unbored by girls, and that was hard to make me pay attention to the teacher. But but it was really—and so I I always want to move fast enough to maintain interest, but the problem is that that's not how people change. Transformation comes through boredom. Because boredom, in a certain way, if, you, if you're on something long enough to get bored with it, you're actually engaging in intellectual discipline, which is what allows you to possess a fundamental and remember it and to execute it in real life, out of character. So, 
for the last eight months, we've only been doing one thing in every series and one thing in every sermon. And we've tried to like vary it up and have the like subject it was based on mixed up enough so that maybe you wouldn't even notice or at least you wouldn't be terribly bored by it. But for eight months, we've been doing one thing. And for the next eight weeks, we're just going to be doing the same thing again in a different way. And that is, we've been moving back to the most fundamental stance of Christian belief, which is this. That in Christ, we have everything we need for gracious striving towards spiritual substance and escaping the choking corruption of the world. Now, of worldliness. By worldliness, I don't mean the world in the sense of the creation or everything good that God has created in the world. Worldliness in the Bible specifically refers to a world-onlyness. That the things of the world are, are, are something in and of themselves unrelated to God and however we wish to use them. And the principles of a, a world not recognizing God or his truths and how we live as though God doesn't exist is this form of actions and mentality the Bible calls worldliness. And that mentality is soul-crippling. And it has to be escaped. And spiritual substance— has to be striven after graciously. And the resources for both of those come from Christ. And in Christ, we have everything we need for those things. And if you can't get that stance, you can't get anywhere in Christian faith. And you will feel like Christian faith doesn't work for you, or maybe I'm not a religious person, or I'm a Christian, but I'm full of anxieties, and I'm resentful, and like, this clearly isn't making me a better person. You'll feel all the symptoms Jesus said you would have if your heart was full of worldliness and not full of the substance of the gracious striving of faith. Does that make sense? Now, let me, I'm just going to go through the series, right? So the first series was Real Spirituality, where we talked about how do we really, how do we really become spiritual? And we talked about lots of different practices in that series, but the memory verse for that series was this one out of Philippians, right? Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. So you see the point here? What is your salvation in the context of Philippians? Well, it's what God has done for us in Christ. That in Christ's death and resurrection, he died for our sins and rose for our justification so that we could be forgiven and set right, right with God and free in the world so we could escape the oppressive slavery of sin and worldliness so we can be who we were meant to be living in virtuous freedom and keeping in step with the Spirit. And so we have everything we need to do that, and yet— it involves a certain kind of gracious striving that is very intense, which is where we get this fairly famous word in all of Christian literature that comes from this verse, fear and trembling, right? So you This one? Cool. Um, and the idea was, like, think about this. When was the last time you trembled? Literally, try to think of the last time you physically trembled. Right? You were like, ooh. Car accident? Your last car accident? 
Or like you just missed somebody on the road, and you're like, oh. Or, so, or what, right? Somebody said they loved you. But like it's not very common, right? It's a pretty intense experience where like something so profoundly moves you emotionally in terms of mental conviction, and it gets a hold of your heart that your body physiologically does something, right? And what this passage is saying, Paul is saying is, that is how the gracious striving in Christ, that's how intense it is. That as you work out your salvation, it should be like that. It should be at that level of fear and trembling. Otherwise, you're not really doing it. Does that make sense? And here's why. Because as human beings, we're not committed to the most fundamental things in life. Because we find them boring, and because we don't think they're that important really, and because the fundamentals of life really interfere with what we're trying to do to do our own self-salvation and self-life management. We don't really like the fundamentals. The fundamentals are way too healthy. It's like eating like seven grain bread, and you're like, I gotta eat this, and then I gotta floss, you know? But it's supposed to be good for me. But Wonder Bread just, it feels so good. Right? So the, the main insight to take out of this series was this. The gracious striving is part of the repeating, of the, of the receiving. The gracious striving is part—so so like, sometimes we think of Christian salvation like this. Right? We're sinners, and God will judge sin because he is beautifully righteous, right? And so when Christ dies and rises from the dead and we come to him, right, we receive forgiveness. We receive the presence of his spirit so we're never alone. We receive a reordering towards our creational purpose and our significance and meaning in this life. Everything in our life gets a a new level of meaning and purpose and orderedness so that things mean more than they ever meant and they're ordered more than—and so we know what we're doing, why we're here, right? And you start adding these. And then what we often think is God gives us all these things— And what he demands from us is that we become more like Jesus. So let's do that. That's totally wrong. The changing is part of the gift. In some ways, you could even say the changing is the gift. God did not—Christ did not come so that we could stay completely enslaved in sin— completely twisted in our thinking about what we even mean, that it even means that we exist, completely closed off to the higher skylighted realities of God's divine existence, completely rejecting his purposes for human life and our existence and creation as his stewards, utterly misunderstanding the very definitions of friendship and intimacy and truth and love, and all of these things, but he just wants to forgive us, and that's it. The, in, the entire purpose of redemption is redemption— that what we were created to be at first is we, what we might be made in the end in Christ, which is a certain kind of creature. And before we can be that, we have to be forgiven, and we need the power of God's Holy Spirit, and we need to be released from, from the lies of the falsity of sin and all of that kind of stuff. But the end is the different creature we become in Christ. That is part of the gift. And yet— The thing that's different about that than the rest of the gift is that there's a gracious striving involved in it. And yet, gracious striving is often part of receiving, especially if a gift has a shared purpose. So, um, there's a chiropractor in the church that was like, during your sabbatical, why don't you come and I'll crack you in a bunch of ways and you'll probably feel better. And, And so I went and saw him a couple times. And one of the things that was great is he dealt with like all kinds of different issues. I had one I had with my shoulders. And so he gave me this bag of, like, those string-like, weighty, like, things you're supposed to exercise with, the rubber 
whatever's. Like, if you buy those, it's like a, a bag with all the different ones and with the equipment. It's like 85 bucks. And he just, he just he said, I want you to have this, right? Now, that is a different kind of gift than like a pumpkin spice mocha latte, whatever, right? Like, you, rec- you receive that. It's a different set of parameters when you receive that. Because you, you don't buy it. Like, I, it's, it would be insulting if I would have paid him right? But the, the idea of the gift is he's giving me something because he has a vision for me, and he believes that I have a vision for me, and he and I share a vision for me, and he's giving me everything I need to, to, be, to be part of that vision. But the only way I can receive that gift is by doing what? I have to use it. And if I don't use it, it's kind of insulting because I'm not really receiving it. And I'm showing not only do I not believe in his vision for me, I don't believe in my vision for me that we seemed to share. That is, I don't have faith in the recovery of my shoulders, even though he does. Does that make sense? And you see, there's part of the gospel, part of the gift of the gospel, that is given freely and graciously and out of the generosity of God, and yet, to apprehend it and to participate in it, you have to engage in this gracious striving. Gracious striving is part of the receiving especially if the gift is itself a developmental gift. And the gospel is a developmental gift. Now, the second series we did was Everything We Need, where, in which we get that phrase from the Bible in which Peter says, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so you can see the same three things in this, right? In Christ— he has given us everything we need. Who is the, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness? Who is the one who called us by his own glory and goodness? Right? That's Christ. Right? And it says that he's done this through, right? Through these, that is his glory and his goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises. So there are these things that Jesus says are true about reality and true about what he's going to do and true about what's happened in his death and resurrection. And he has given not just himself to us and not just his power to us, but he's given us these definite truths that if we believe them will fundamentally change the framework of our existence. And it says that Those promises that he's given us are an expression of the two greatest gifts anyone can give anyone, right? If, if I, if I, or or somebody had a relationship with you, and they gave you the very best of themselves, right, what would they give you, right? Now, if we're not ridiculously morally shallow people, it would be something like the best of them in terms of their goodness, that is the, the, the gift of their very character. Bent to our good. That's what love is, actually. Love is a good and truthful character committed to the true good of another. Right? They, they, they would give you their goodness, and they would give you whatever was best about them, greatest, most enjoyable, most magnificent about them, their glory. So what this passage says is, is that, listen— in Christ, in his death and resurrection, in his life, in his very good and precious promises, he has given us everything we need. He's given us the two best things any being can give any being, his very goodness and his very glory. And it was, it's through those things he's given us his very good and precious promises. That is his death and resurrection and life in him. And it's through those you can what? 
receive everything we need for gracious striving towards spiritual substance. That is, that it's through these, right? Through them you may participate in the divine nature, right? Grow into and walk into the spiritual substance and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. That is, escape worldliness, right? And that requires gracious striving. So for this very reason, the reason of these things, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control. What is that process? It's a process of becoming like Jesus, of living into the promise, of, be, of embodying God's own glory and goodness in what he's making us into, and therefore walking away from the slavery and corruption and choking effects of the world on us. That is, you have to do both. You can't just be positive about it. We have to reject and walk away from worldliness, because it'll kill us, and yet walk into the gracious striving of spiritual substance. It's all there. And one of the, one of the um, insights from this we can take is that the abundance of our effort in gracious striving should be motivated by the abundance of God's gifts in Christ. You see, the emphasis in 2 Peter 1 is not how hard we're going to have to work. It says we're going to make every effort with fear and trembling, Right? But it doesn't start talking that way. It starts with his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him by his own glory. He's like, everything's big. Okay, so there's two kinds of fishermen. So during my sabbatical, I did some more fishing. My son can't get enough of the thing. There's two kinds of fishermen. There's sports fishermen and there's frying pan fishermen. Now sports fishermen will like fish all day to catch one big fish. Right? They'll cast like a thousand times for a muskie, and if they catch it, they're psyched. I don't—I love those people, but I don't understand them, okay? There's another kind of fisherman that wants to catch food. Like, they like the fishing, but they like to catch food. And I am this kind of fisherman. And when you're that kind of fisherman, the best time to fish is when the fish are biting. Everything that you do to get to the point where you're catching fish is you're changing everything until the stars align, okay? You catch, you catch one fish here, one fish there. That's not good enough. That's not why you're there. You move, you change the color, you change the bait, you change the space, you change the depth. You look for water that's a different temperature. You move, you change, you move, you change until it's like boom, 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 boom. Because fish congregate where they want to be and you got to find where they are or you can't catch a bunch of them. And if you want to eat fish, you've got to catch a bunch of them. And so the time when you need to fish the hardest is when you're catching them. I learned this when I was in Florida. Because in Florida, you'll spend like five hours going 15 miles offshore, getting beat up by the waves, getting everything ready, going around finding the wreck. And then when you find that school of 12,000 red snapper, it is just carnage for 20 minutes and then it's over. And you, I mean, it doesn't matter if you get caught. It doesn't matter if somebody falls in. It doesn't matter what happens. When you get on that wreck, <clears throat> your line is down. Your fish is up. Your line is down. Your fish is up. You're throwing pink critters everywhere, and nothing stops, and nobody stops, and nobody takes a drink, and nobody eats a snack until the carnage is over, and then it's over. Okay? That's fishing, if you've never done it. And what Second Peter is saying is, the work of Christ is such that in your spiritual work of bringing up spiritual substance— okay, I know this is, I'm stretching the metaphor, but just go with me here, okay? You're always fishing in a feeding frenzy. 
You see, what we generally think is, is that like, we're going to work really hard to be like Jesus. We're going to work so hard. We're going to strive. We're going to fear and tremble. We're going to like, we're going to gut it out. We're going to be good people. We're going to tell the truth. We're going to blah, 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 blah. And like, at some point, maybe God will show up and like, something will happen. Or over some long period of time, we will like, gut out like the desert of human life. And like, I don't know where God is, but maybe sometime he'll do something. That's not what it's like at all. That's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible says is that his divine power is on us constantly. His promises are there every moment. His glory and goodness are revealed in everything he's taught us, everything he is, everything he's making us to be. It's all—it's a feeding frenzy of divine experiment. And if you will just drop a hook into it, you will burn out your shoulders hauling up the meat of spiritual substance. You just got to fish. You just got to do it. You just got to go for it because it's there. And the reason why our spiritual lives are flat is not because God's activity is not present. It's because God's activity accompanies spiritual striving. And so it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be difficult. It, it's part of the changing and the striving and the working and the being. But that doesn't mean that God isn't incredibly present in it. And if we change our perspective in faith, you will actually see an enormous amount of God's activity. If what you're looking for is not your own momentary glee, but a new man or woman being forged in the fires of life through the grace of the gospel in Christ, in you. And if that's what you're striving for, and that's what you're looking for, you will see evidence of divine activity and grace everywhere. And you will see your heart change, and other people notice that change. But if what you just want is for your life to go well, and on the side you're kind of like, well, maybe you're going to be really frustrated like the girl who tries to bump the volleyball but won't bend her knees. Now, the third series we did was Feel Better, where we went through the Psalms, especially Psalms of David, especially conflict Psalms of David, where there was some kind of major inner conflict that David was dealing with, right? And so you can, you can lay out how these Psalms functioned a little bit like this, that human life internally is full of turmoil, difficulty, fear, anxiety, resentfulness, bitterness, so on, right? And it's because we have these very deep human desires. We want to survive. We want to be loved. We want to feel safe. And all those are fundamental to ex the existence of any creature and any being, and they're not in and of themselves bad. But because we're broken in sin, because the world is full of worldliness, there are all these ways of self-salvation, of devouring each other, of— of brokenness that grab at our attention. And so we—things are going to happen where we're going to feel afraid. And things are going to happen where we're going to feel a great misfortune has come to us. And things are going to happen where we're going to feel like we've been oppressed or we're suffering from injustice or that we have this great desire we want to be fulfilled or that we want to feel like we're secure or good enough. And so we want to feel like that in relationship to something that isn't. And, and so we want to step over something to feel like we're high enough. And all those are fundamental human existence because pride partly comes from a desire for security, right? And yet, every one of those human desires— has connected to it a easy way out, a way of dealing with it that is connected to worldliness, right? 
that is, that denies the existence of God and who he is and what he's done and how he works in the world and what he's made us for and what he's called us to be and instead functions on principles that deny all of those things and look to our own self-salvation, our own doing whatever we want to do, our own getting what we want as soon as possible. And so there's always in fear a way of cowardice. Remember we looked at Psalm, I think it was Psalm 36, where David said, all these people are closing in around me to kill me. How can you say to me, flee like a bird to the mountains? See what he's saying? He's saying, I know I want to be a coward. I know I want to be a coward. People are closing in around me. I'm terrified. They're, they're trying to kill me. So I don't need you telling me to take the cowardly way out. I need you to tell me that God is in heaven and God is my deliverer and you will stand with me and we will stand for the truth in God and he is our deliverer and come what may. Because in living or dying, I am Christ's. And that's true for all these things. In great misfortune, we have the temptation of gloom. And like, nothing's going to go right for me, and things are better for everybody else, and how my life has been, and is how it will be, and nothing but, but bad is ever going to happen to me. I, one of our staff members said that. She said, she said, something got a hold of me recently, and she said, I realized I was believing in Jesus in a way where I said, nothing, God's never going to do anything good in my life. Nothing ever good is going to happen, but I'm going to gut it out. Like, that's not a very Christian way to look at things. Because it, it imagines you as tough, and God is stingy. And she realized that though she was trying to believe as a Christian, she was actually becoming given in her heart to gloom that was leading to depression and anxiety. And she had to believe again that God was good and that he was her deliverer, that he was her defender, that in him was her happiness. And in injustice comes bitterness and hatred towards others and a sense of victimization towards ourselves. And like, I'm never going to get out of this. I'm never—right? And so on. Yet in every psalm, David said— Though this is the desire of my heart, my fear, and this is the worldly way out, and this is the way I'm tempted to go. Then he went to, but God is this kind of God. In him I have everything I need for a life of godliness. In him, because of his very good and precious promises, he is my deliverer, he is my happiness, he is my defender, he is the fountain of my right pleasures. He is the one who is so glorious that I can be self-forgetful in my pride. He is my security. God is those things, and God brings those things about through a wholesome truthfulness, and it is my job to be faithful, and it is his job to work things out. I am not the manager of my life. I am the steward of my life. I am the moral actor of my life. He is the providential actor. I don't work things out for me in my own pragmatic wickedness. I do what's beautiful, what's true, what's honorable, what looks like Christ, and then God is in charge of working out whatever works out. Something that I can never know, and what it, it actually means to live. live is all, living is all about risk. And risk comes by faith. Otherwise, you're risking somebody else's life. You take the pragmatic route, you are risking as little as you possibly can to save your own skin, and you're already always risking other people's happinesses, endangering their lives. 
Faith says in the midst of all my fears, I'm going to trust God, and I'm going to do what's morally true and beautiful and good and right, come what may, and the only one who can deliver me is God, and I will trust to him that there's something about how he'll work, something about the way he's designed things, something that I can't see, but I will step into this and risk everything, and I will find out what it is living or dying in Christ, and that is what living looks like. And it's exciting. Every minute— and the reason our lives are boring is because worldliness is boring. All you're ever doing is saving your own skin. That's like going to a hundred movies and cheering for the villain every time. We wouldn't go. And so the way that the Psalms work is, is that we look to God— and we see who God is, and we're terrified, and we want to do the worldly thing, and we realize, no, God is who he is, and so I need to turn to the one who is actually there, which leads us back to the being of God, so that our faith doesn't become just a philosophy or a psychology. Christianity is not a philosophy, and it's not a psychology. It has philosophical implications and psychological implications, but it is about a God who is there, a being who has eternally existed, and who is interacting with you in the world. And you're not to call on the Christian philosophy for salvation, nor the Christian psychology for relief. You are to call on the God who is there to deliver, save, love, change, and fill you with hope. And so David says, Lord, because you hear my voice, because you have heard my cry for mercy, because you turned your ear to me, I will call on you as long as I live. Right? Which means that Maybe the great insight that we can take from this is that worship and prayer are the headwaters of gracious striving. You see, one of the things that is, that is um, difficult in the Christian churches is that um, especially the more educated we become, the more financially and materially successful we become. In fact, this isn't just true for Americans who have money and education. This is true for all human beings. The worst spiritual times in the history of Israel were actually the times when Israel was the most financially prosperous. Because people end up turning to God when they're, they're at the end of the rope. When they no longer can work out things worldly in a worldly way for themselves, that's when people turn to God when they can't do anything else. Now, usually they turn to God dishonestly, which we'll get to in a minute, but that's when they do it. And so that's, that's, that's the reason we don't pray. You see, in a sense, prayer is reorienting the heart to God being the center of who we are and how we choose, and how we deal with our fears and our desires. Right? Because if you ask yourself this, what, what was the gracious striving in the psalm series? And the answer is, the psalms themselves. The psalms themselves. We were reading David's gracious striving that was included in Scripture for us so we would learn how to do it. Right? What, what did he do? He said, God, this is how I feel. I'm terrified. I'm hurting. I feel like these people are going to kill me. I want to take the easy way out. I want to fly to the mountains. I want to run away. I want to be a coward. But in your light, we see light. And you are my deliverer. And I will stand as best I can. And what I'm called to do as king. And I will act as righteously as I know how. And I will trust you to bring about your end. And if I die, I die. If I live, I live. But my heart is in you. My joy is in you. My love is in you. My, my hope and my trust is in you. Please deliver me. That emotional movement of making a torn heart one heart, a broken heart one heart, a heart trying to move in two directions— with a rope tied to each other. 
So one of the reasons why we experience all of these symptoms Jesus said we would have in worldliness, we would feel like our faith is being choked, we'd feel a deep sense of anxiety and worry, we'd feel like our faith isn't anything but bring us peace, we feel like just harried and like, like uh, fraying at the ends, that we're resentful towards God for demanding so much from us and giving us so little. The reason we would feel like that, Jesus said, was because we're trying to serve two masters. That is, we're people of two hearts. And people who are torn in two inside can never be at peace. And you see, in, the, in modernity, there is this fable that the most fundamental problems of human existence, our greatest fights, are outside of us. And therefore, our greatest salvation is technology and knowledge. And if we get the right phones and the right antibiotics and the right systems and the right solar panels, that we will, we will overcome our greatest obstacles. And, and the reality is there are a lot of very terrible obstacles outside of us in the world. But our overcoming of them through science is actually a smaller achievement. Science waited this long to get as far as it is because of our wickedness as people. We spend all our resources on all the worst possible things. We'll spend billions of dollars on pornography this year, and not nearly as much on researching this or that disease. If we wanted to over—really, in our hearts, wanted over—even our problem with our external problems is an internal problem. The greatest problem humans have ever faced, the greatest problem they will ever face, is the division inside their own heart. The line between good and evil, the two wills, our propensity towards what the Bible calls the flesh and what Christ is doing in the Spirit, it is that internal division that is destroying us. And Christ has come to make us not just free, but to make us one. That's what integrity means, right? An integer, a single thing. And you see, in worldliness, we have—we want to have one finger in everything because we want to have our options open. Because if this doesn't work out, we want this. And if this doesn't work out, we want this. And you could just put, if he doesn't work out, then I want him. And if he doesn't—or or if this job, then this. Then this career, that. Or this—we we, we, want—you can't have—that's not how it works. You can't be a whole person without there being one, right? To will one thing, to want one end, is the only way to be at peace. And that's what all the Psalms are, was David being torn into finding a oneness again in the one who gave us everything we need for gracious striving to spiritual substance and to escape the corruption in the world. Right? And then the last series was Samuel, where Although this, the story of Samuel is about God saving his people and developing and leading his people through the bringing of his anointed one, which points forward to his second and greater anointed one in Christ, the narrative of 1 Samuel f basically follows the lives of two people, right? If you were here, um, the first king of Israel, Saul, and the second king of Israel, David. And if you listen to the sermons, you know that Saul became king and he didn't do what God wanted him to do. And God took the kingdom away from him in his, 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 but he held on to it and his heart hardened and he ended up living, dying this very tragic death with his sons and it was this huge implosion. And so the story of Saul is kind of like, right? 
And then as foil to that, and as contrast to it, is this person David, this young, like, handsome young man who has a heart after God and has forged a heart for God in singing songs of devotion in the wilderness. And he's learned to kill lions and bears over, over saving sheep. And then he comes and he defeats Goliath. He's, he's anointed to be king even before that. And he's rising up and winning God's battles and trusting in God and believing in God. And he eventually becomes king and is Israel's greatest king, right? And sometimes people think that the difference between Samuel and David, or Saul and David, is that Saul was a bad person. And David was a good person. And that is not true. There are no good men. And I mean that in a non-gender specific way. There are no good people. Okay, Christianity has at least two identifications. Identifying with the sin and death of Adam. That in Adam, all of humanity shares a common lineage to having God's image in us and choosing and dying in sin, wickedness, hatred, and death. That's what we are fundamentally as humans in identifying with Christ in his life given through his death and resurrection, his redemption of Adam's dying children to a new redemption. There are, there are redeemed people. There are repentant people. There are not good people. And the only way anybody becomes in any sense a doer or liver or beer of any kind of true and deeper good is when you forget about trying to be good and you try to live towards something that is good. Best if it's the embodiment of all that is good and beautiful, Jesus the Christ himself. I mean, think about this for a second. We read David's life oftentimes, and the things we love to preach about are the parts of his life where he is, is killing it. You know, where he's doing something awesome. Let me read—here's some other things that happened in David's life. His first-in-command, Joab, murdered three people that David should have politically protected. Joab, or Absalom, Abner, and Amasa. You would think after the first murder, David would have done something about his right-hand man, and he didn't. He didn't stop Absalom, his own son, from usurping the throne. And one of the reasons why Absalom could steal the heart of Israel may very well have been that the justice system in Israel wasn't working efficiently enough to really hear people's claims. That's why Absalom could say, oh, come and tell me what's wrong, and I'll fix it. If David and his court systems were fixing everything, it would have been a lot harder for Absalom to do that. He didn't, he didn't discipline his own son, Amnon, after he raped his half-sister, meaning David's daughter, Tamar, so that Absalom ended up murdering his own brother because David wouldn't do anything, which is probably partly because David did not obey the Bible, and when you become king, do not take many wives. He had probably at least 13. He had probably more women than that, which means he had piles of sons. And listen, I've got one son, and I have a hard enough time turning him into a man. Can you imagine if you've got piles—I mean, how do you— as a father, shepherd the heart of that many young men to become real men. What you get is these sons of privilege and money and whatever who think that they could rape their half-sister because she's a hot virgin young girl. And then do—and then not do anything about it? So that—so that she—that so girl lived in disgrace, it says, her whole life. And then—oh, it just goes on. 
And then he, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, right? Which is bad enough. And it has this kind of ugly interracial thing because Bathsheba's white husband was a Hittite guy. He was racially not Jewish. And he'd come into the people of God as an outsider and married like this hometown girl. And then the king stole the hot hometown girl and then sent this guy in to die in battle, right? Now think about this. It wasn't just Uriah. He didn't, he didn't send Uriah up to the, to the gate of a city and then pull his men back. He sent Uriah's whole unit which means it wasn't just Uriah that died. It was all his best men fighting with him, and all of their wives became widows, and all of their children became orphans. Or fatherless, at least. Which was essentially the same in the ancient world. He didn't oversee the succession of his kingdom so that one of his sons killed another one of his sons because he didn't actually oversee how that worked. He put his faith in the size of his army, and it goes on, okay? David was not a good man. In fact, it gets so far where he actually realizes, out of real devotion to God, he says, I have built a palace for myself, and yet God still dwells in the tent of meeting. And that's just not right. I want to—I've become wealthy. I want to build a house for God. And Nathan the prophet goes, that sounds like a great idea. You should do that. And then God shows up and says, like, Nathan, no! You go back and you tell him he can't build the temple because he's a man of blood. Right? Now, da God is not saying to David, listen, David— you're this awesome dude. You're just—you've done so well. But listen, you're a soldier, and you've killed a lot of people. <clears throat> and it's just spiritually confusing for people if the, like, top warlord builds the holy—builds the church, okay? So we just—I just need to split that up. So you did a great job being king, and Solomon will build the temple. It'll be fine. That's not the point. David killed a lot of people he wasn't supposed to kill. He was a man of blood in the bad sense. He was a murderer. Now listen, I know it's hard to grapple with this because the Bible also calls David a man after God's own heart and never repents of that. David was a man after God's own heart and there was almost no one like him on planet Earth. Right? If you're sitting there judging David, listen, I'd love to see you as the head warlord in an ancient Near East like militant group that's trying to save the lives of people who are getting raided from all sides, who women are being taken into slavery and prostitution, little kids are being killed and wiped out. Like, I'd like to see how clean you led all that, okay? You're David. You probably would have been a whole lot worse. I would have been for sure. I probably would have quit the first battle. Or died. <laughs> um— Yet my mom was nodding. That's not very encouraging. <clears throat> so the, the point is, is that, so then what's the difference, right? What was the difference? Like, don't buy into the whole modern, like, media-driven, like, virtue signaling, like, look, there's all these virtue signals you have to do, and if you don't do them, then you're a bad person. Everybody's a bad person, okay? The, the world of the Bible is fundamentally complex because everybody can be redeemed. God is calling everybody to himself. People have divided hearts. We're wicked, and yet we have this incredible potential. He's drawing us out of it through faith. He's calling us into this incredible redemption. We're both these terrible, wicked sinners. We have divine potential in the divine image given us in our creation. We're being redeemed by Christ. It's a huge mess. And God thrives redemptively in the complexity of the world that is. And modern people don't. We just don't. We just don't want anything to do with it. But what that means is, is that you and I can't be honest enough about our lives to realize how much of a mix we are, how broken we are. Because then we'll, we'll say, well, then what could possibly happen with me? I mean, I'm, I am like David. I'm a man or woman of blood, essentially. 
I got blood all over. I got, I got blood up to my shoulders. And so here's the, and so that's great. Because once you realize that, then you can say, okay, wait, but if David was somehow redeemed, somehow he was a man after God's own heart, then what's the difference, right? And here's the difference. Repentance. The willingness to make their heart one thing. The only fundamental difference between Saul and David was that Saul unrepentantly repented, and David actually repented. If you read through 1 Samuel, Saul says he's wrong a bunch of times. He says he's sorry a bunch of times. He says he's going to change a bunch of times. But he, he never really is. He's always just saying enough to call on God enough to essentially use God as an idol to get whatever he needs then so he can go back to what he was doing, which is why Samuel could say to him, your disobedience is like the sin of idolatry or the sin of divination. What is divination? Magic is essentially using spiritual forces to get what you want without regard to what the spiritual forces are or what they would want. Right? It's, it's using spiritual things for your own worldly ends. Well, whenever you only turn to God just to, enough to get just what you need right now so that you can go back to what you were doing, what you were doing, that's, that's called magic. That's not called faith or repentance. And when, when Saul was repenting, he wasn't making a divided heart one. He wasn't throwing off worldliness and willing one thing and wanting to, to surge in spiritual substance towards something. He was just trying to have both. He was trying to use God as an idol that would get him what he wanted, and he was unrepentantly repenting. And what that produces is the self-deception that just leads to us being hardened and hardened and hardened and hardened. Whereas when David saw he did something that was foul, terrible, and ugly, he repented. He really did turn around. He took the thing that had infected his heart and realized that he couldn't want those two things. He couldn't love both of those things. That he was at a precipice of life or death, and he took this thing and he threw it as far away from himself as he could, and he turned to God. That's what the Bible says, through and through. And so when we look at, when we look at this this um, section, that's really what Samuel says to the whole nation of Israel, right? He says, look, if you really are turning back to God after all your worldly idolatry, then here's what you got to do. You got you to gotta first, you've got to get out of the choking, sinful slavery of worldliness. Take all your idols and your asterisks and all the stuff that you use to get what you want, and you need to get rid of it. There is no redemption in, if you keep everything that's killing you. And then you throw all that stuff away and you turn to God and you serve him only. And you see, that's the thing that Saul would never do. That's the thing that in all his failures, all his enormous failures, David did do. And that is the very thing that God has always demanded of us. Redemption must come through no longer being torn in two, but becoming one thing in Christ. And that, th that is the hardest thing in the world. The greatest war in any human being that has ever existed is that moment of internal experience where it's a, uh, it is a fundamental either or. You burn everything that isn't the way to ashes in your heart and mind. It's—you let it all go, really. 
That, that's why Jesus says to come to him is like taking up your cross and following him and dying every day. That's why he constantly likens faith to death. Because to look at the worldly part of us, the flesh in us, and say, I'm giving you over to dying. You're no longer my hope. I won't give any of my attention to you. It's over. I want one thing. My heart will be after one thing. I can only be one person. I'm going to have integrity. I'm going to be a single thing in Christ. And so the worldliness is gone, and I will strive with everything in me, with fear and trembling after all the substance God has drawn me into, and I know that only in that do I have everything I need in Christ. That decision moment that comes to us every day, sometimes every hour, is the greatest watershed of human experience. That place inside of you will define everything in your life, every moment of your life, and every implication of your life for eternity. And so that is the place inside of us that Christ demands. That's why Christians can just say you're saved by faith. That's it. But you see, that, that's why for some people they think that that's a cheap thing, but it's not. Because that is the, the single point in all of space on which everything turns. If in that single point of space inside our hearts, everything is given over to one thing, to the one true and beautiful one, and all else is, all else is repented of and thrown away, everything good flows out of that inexorably, and nothing evil can come. It's this—it's like the Big Bang. It's this infinitesimal spot where if there is faith, a universe comes into existence, and if there isn't, nothing can ever happen but entropy and death. Everything comes down to that question. And so you see, when we, when we realize all we're ever doing is recognizing that in Christ, we have everything we need for gracious striving towards spiritual substance and to escape the choking of worldliness— it will lead us back to that place inside of us where we, we, we slowly undecide. Because listen, deceptionally speaking, if I'm deceiving you, I don't have to get you to say everything is wrong. I can mess with, I can let you do all kinds of things. If I can just get you to add something to that place of purity, just add some things in. Anything, anything involved in the world is. There's a thousand parts of the world. If I can get one of those things, and I can add it in with Christ with you, to where it's, it's equally a means of you trying to save yourself. I've got you. It's over. Over the last three years at High Point, as I've tried to figure out how to be a pastor, um, I've worked really hard— to be an effective leader, essentially from an executive point of view, right? So there's a lot of things going on in my life. I have lots of appointments. I'm doing lots of different things. My life is really busy and scattered, and so I've been approaching it from the perspective of I, I, I need to be a better, like, m manager, leader, executive over all this stuff, and if I can do that, then my life will be better, and the church's life will be better, and God will be more honored by all of this, and it'll be good for whoever our church touches. And one of the, probably the only spiritual conviction that grew during my sabbatical is that what's actually true is that pastors like me get to a certain place in terms of leading folks, 
and we restart thinking that way. That is, worldliness comes in and places itself with Christ in how we are living our life. And what, what seemed to be the conviction that I think God was growing in me was, my life, my life with you in this church, whatever legacy there will be for my life, will go exactly as far as my godliness and nothing else. And that the reason why I felt stuck or anxious myself was not because my job was too complicated, but because my heart was too complicated. That in all the years that I had tried to minister just the gospel about Jesus and to live for him with everything I had and to grow in Christ, over time, I was adding more skills to what I was doing. And as I was doing that, instead of laying skills on top of it as another layer of building— they were becoming part of what I thought was actually foundational to my own life. And what was happening instead was all the things Jesus wanted to do, which was make me a godly person, those sins were just ordering themselves in slightly more sophisticated ways so they could stay. And what was stunting me as a person, what has been stunting me as a person now for years, is my willingness to allow my increasingly sophisticated sins to stay. For me to will multiple things, for me to, to allow resentment and anxiety— and worry, and double-mindedness into my own heart, and think that I can fix that with the tools of the world if I read enough leadership books, and if I act keenly enough, and I work with enough self-discipline. And um, that isn't true. And so my goal for the next seven weeks and the next seven years is to actually believe that my life and my life with you is going to go exactly as far as I'm willing to go with Jesus himself in terms of godliness. And, and the other things are going to be around here somewhere, but they're not what's going to, what's going to ultimately matter. And the, the, the lion's share of my attention and my heart's energy has to turn back to Christ and Christ himself and what in his divine power he has given me to triumph over that which lingers of sin's affectiveness and the space that worldliness has claimed in me. And all I can do as your pastor is to invite you to do the same thing with me. I've spent a lot of time thinking about how it's done. I wrote, I wrote the book. And that's my best shot at how to do it together, what it will take, what it means to get very specific and I'm, that's the direction I plan to go. And that's the direction I hope that you'll come with me. And so for the next, for the last eight months, for the next seven weeks, and hopefully for the next, well, as long as we're in the body, as they say, that is what I believe we have to seek together and grow in together. So um, I'm going to pray that the worship band is going to come up, and we're going to come back to the fundamental stance of the faith. And remember what Christ has done for us in what we call the Lord's Supper. That in his death and resurrection, in his broken body and shed blood, he has, he has died for our sins and risen for our justification. He has given himself to us in the person of the Spirit. He has offered salvation to all people on only the condition of faith. And he has called us into a gift that it gives everything, but into a gift that draws us into real gracious striving. So we prepare our hearts for this. Let's pray together. Father, 
we come to you today and ask that our souls would be changed by a realization of what it looks like to act with the psalmist and see our fears, see our temptations, and to see you as you are, and to decisively will one thing, and to no longer live broken and torn in half in the world with two hearts, but to have the singleness through which there is freedom. And we pray that as we come and remember again that it is in Christ, in Christ alone, that we have everything that we need. Will you help us to believe it? To believe it so powerfully and so beautifully that the hold of all the other things, that the hold that they have on us would break apart and would weaken and fall away. Because we trust in the words of Philippians 2.12 where it says that we have to do this with fear and trembling, but, but it's you who work in us to even will it, much less to do it. So please, Holy Spirit, come now and work in us to will and to act according to your good purpose. In Jesus' name.